Mr. and Mrs. Davis were shaking as they stood up from the comfortable chairs of the faculty Quidditch box. They couldn't quite clutch each other while walking, but they held hands tightly, pretending hard to be invisible. If there'd been children young enough for accidental magic, they probably would have spontaneously disillusioned themselves. The elderly Charles Knott said nothing as he stood from his chair. The scarred Lord Jugson said nothing as he stood from his own chair. Lucius Malfoy said nothing as he stood. All three of them turned without pause and strode toward the stairwell of the elevated bleachers, moving in eerie unison like an aura trio. Lord Malfoy, the defense professor said in mild tones. That man was still seated in his own chair, looking upon his parchment-like screens, arms limp at his side, as though for some reason he didn't feel like moving. The white-haired man halted just before reaching the exit archway, and the elderly man and the scarred man halted as well, flanking him. Lord Malfoy's head turned, too slightly to be any form of acknowledgement, but in the defence professor's direction. "'Your son performed exceptionally well today,' said Professor Quirrell. I must confess that I underestimated him, and he has earned his army's loyalty, as you have witnessed. Still very mild, the defense professor's voice. Speaking as your son's teacher, it is my opinion that he will not benefit if you interfere in his... Lord Malfoy and his compatriots vanished down the stairs. A fine try, Quirinus, Dumbledore said quietly. The old wizard's face showed small lines of worry. He hadn't risen from his own seat either, staring at the parchment screens as though they were still active. Do you think he will listen? The defense professor's shoulders twitched in a slight shrug, the only movement they'd shown since the battle ended. Well said the Lady Greengrass as she rose up and cracked her knuckles, stretching, her husband silent beside her. I must say, that was quite... interesting. Amelia Bones had risen from her own cushioned seat without any fuss. Interesting indeed, said Director Bones. I do confess, I find myself disturbed by the skill with which those children were fighting one another. The skill? Lord Greengrass said. Their spells didn't seem all that impressive to me, except for Daphne's, of course. The old witch did not move her eyes from where she was gazing at the defense professor's balding head. The stunning hex is not a first-year spell, Lord Greengrass, but that is not the skill I had in mind. They supported each other with those simple spells. They reacted at speed to surprises. The director of the DMLE paused as though searching for words that a mere civilian could understand. In the midst of battle, she said finally, with spells flying in every direction, those children 
seemed quite at home. Indeed, Director Bones, said the defense professor. Some arts are best begun in youth. The old witch's eyes narrowed. You are readying them to become a military force, Professor. To what end? Now hold on, interjected Lord Greengrass. There's plenty of schools where they teach dueling in first year. Dueling, said the defense professor. From behind, it wasn't visible if the pale face was smiling. That is nothing, Lord Greengrass, to what my students have learned. They have learned not to hesitate in the face of ambushes and greater foes. They have learned to adapt when combat conditions change and change again. They have learned to protect their allies, to protect more those who are more valuable, to abandon pieces which cannot be rescued. They have learned that to survive they must follow orders. Some have even learned a little creativity. No, no, Lord Greengrass, these wizards will not hide in their manners and wait to be protected when the next threat comes. They will know that they know how to fight. Augusta Longbottom loudly clapped her hands together three times. We won! It was the first thing Draco heard when he woke up on the battlefield, Padma telling him how his soldiers had rallied after he fell. How, thanks to the Dragon General's foresight, Mr. Thomas had led his detachment to victory over chaos. How General Potter had defeated the portion of the Sunshine Regiment that clashed with him. How Mr. Thomas's dragon warriors had rejoined the main body of soldiers bearing both their own goggles and the sunglasses of the defeated Chaotics. How, only moments later, General Potter's remaining contingent had attacked both other armies with a potion that emitted searing purple light. But Dragon had held the numerical advantage over Sunshine and Chaos both, and enough sunglasses for their warriors. And so Padma had managed to lead her inherited army to victory. From the light in Padma's eyes and her arrogant smile that would have done proud to a Malfoy, she was expecting congratulations. Draco managed to grit out some form of praise from between his clenched teeth and couldn't have said afterwards what it was. The foreign-born witch, it appeared, hadn't any idea what had happened or what it meant. I lost. The dragons trudged back to Hogwarts beneath grey skies, cold droplets landing heavy on Draco's skin one by one. While he'd been stunned, it had begun, the long-promised rain finally beginning to fall. There was only one option left to Draco now, a forced move, as Mr. McNair, who'd taught Draco chess, would have termed it. Harry Potter probably wouldn't like it, if he really was in love with Granger, the way everyone said. But the forced move, as Mr. McNair had defined it, 
was one you needed to make if you wanted the game to continue at all. It kept on playing in Draco's mind, over and over again, even as he walked like an automaton through the massive portals of Hogwarts, sent away Vincent and Gregory with two sharp words, and became alone within his private bedroom, sitting on his bed, staring at the wall above his desk, filling his mind like a Dementor had locked him into the memory. The padlock on his glove, clicking and falling away. Draco knew. He knew what he'd done wrong. He'd been so tired after casting twenty-seven locking charms for all the other dragon warriors. Less than a minute wasn't enough time to recover after each spell, and so he'd just cast Colaportus on his own padlocked glove. Just cast the spell, not put all his strength to bind it stronger than Harry Potter or Hermione Granger could undo. But nobody was going to believe that, even if it was true. Even in Slytherin, nobody would believe that. It sounded like an excuse, and an excuse was all that anyone would hear. Granger whirled and spun and screamed, Hello, Hermora! Draco's mind kept playing it over and over as the resentment built. He'd helped Granger, cooperated with her on banning traitors, held her hand as she'd dangled off the roof, stopped a riot from breaking out around her in the Great Hall. Did she have any idea what he had risked, what he'd probably already lost, what it meant for the heir of House Malfoy to do that for a mudblood? And now there was only one move left. And the thing about a forced move was that you had to make it, even if it meant getting detention and losing house points. Professor Snape would know and understand, but there were limits, Father had warned him, to what the potions master would overlook. Challenge Granger to a wizard's duel in open defiance of Hogwarts regulations. Attack her outright if she tried to refuse. Defeat her one-on-one -on -one in public, not with clever dueling technique, but by overpowering her magic. Beat her solidly, completely. Crush her as utterly as the Dark Lord himself had crushed his enemies. Make it absolutely clear to everyone, so that nobody could possibly doubt that Draco had just been exhausted from casting the spell so many times. Prove that the Malfoy blood was stronger than any mudbloods. Only it's not, Harry Potter's voice whispered inside Draco's mind. It's easy to forget what's really true, Draco, once you start trying to win at politics. But in reality, 
There's only one thing that makes you a wizard. Remember? Draco knew then. He knew the reason for the disquiet in the back of his mind, as he stared at the blank wall above his desk, contemplating his forced move. It should have been simple. When you only had one move, the thing to do was make it. But... Granger whirling, spinning, sweat-damped hair flying around her, bolts flying from her wand as fast as his own, jinx and counter-jinx, glowing bats flying at his face, and through all of it the look of fury in Granger's eyes. There'd been a part of him admiring that, before it had all gone wrong. Admiring Granger's fury and power, a part of him that had exulted in the first real fight he had ever been in against an equal opponent. If he challenged Granger and lost, it ought not to be possible. Draco had gotten his wand two full years before anyone else in his Hogwarts class. Only... There was a reason why they usually didn't bother giving wands to nine-year-olds. Age counted too. It wasn't just how long you'd held a wand. Granger's birthday had been only a few days into the year when Harry had bought her that pouch. That meant she was twelve now. That she'd been twelve almost since the start of Hogwarts. And the truth was... Draco hadn't been practicing much outside of class. Probably not nearly as much as Hermione Granger of Ravenclaw. Draco hadn't thought he needed any more practice to stay ahead. And Granger was exhausted too, whispered the voice of contrary evidence inside him. Granger must have been exhausted from all those stunning hexes, and even in that state, she had been able to undo his locking charm. And Draco could not afford to challenge Granger publicly, one-on-one -on -one with no excuses, and lose. Draco knew what you were supposed to do in this sort of situation, you were supposed to cheat. But if anyone discovered Draco cheating, it would be disastrous. Perfect blackmail material, even if it never got out publicly, and any Slytherins watching would know that. They'd be looking. And then, if you were watching, you would have seen Draco get up from his bed and go to his desk, and take out a sheet of the finest sheepskin parchment and a pearl carven inkwell, filled with greenish silver ink that had been made with true silver and crushed emeralds. From the great trunk at his bed's foot, the Slytherin drew forth a book bound also in silver and emeralds, entitled The Etiquette of the Houses of Britain. And... With a new, clean quill, Draco Malfoy began to write, frequently looking to the book where it lay open as reference. There was a grim smile on the boy's face.
making the young Malfoy look very much like his father, as he carefully drew each letter as though it were a separate artwork. From Draco, son of Lucius, son of Abraxas, lord of the noble and most ancient house of Malfoy, son also of Narcissa, daughter of Juella, lady of the noble and most ancient house of Black, scion and heir of the noble and most ancient house of Malfoy. To Hermione, the first of Granger. That form might have been meant to sound polite long ago when it had been invented. Nowadays, after centuries of being used to address mudbloods, it carried a lovely tinge of refined venom. I, Draco of most ancient house, demand redress for... Draco paused, carefully moving the quill aside so that it wouldn't drip. He needed a pretext for this, at least if he wanted to impose the jewel's conditions. The challenged had the choice of terms unless they'd insulted a noble house. He needed to make it look like Granger had insulted him. What was he thinking? Granger had insulted him. Draco flipped the book to the page of standard formula and found one that seemed appropriate. I, Draco of most ancient house, demand redress for that I have thrice overhelped you and offered you only my good will, and in return you falsely accused me of plotting against you. Draco had to stop and take a breath, forcing down the seething anger. He was starting to genuinely feel the insult now, and he'd just written out the last phrase and underlined it without thinking, like it was an ordinary letter. After a moment's reflection, he decided to let it stand. It might not be the exact formal phrasing, but it had a raw, angry tone that seemed appropriate. Which insult you committed before the eyes of Britain? Thus, I, Draco, compel you, Hermione, by custom, by law, by... The seventeenth ruling of the thirty-first Wizengamot, Draco said aloud without looking, a line delivered in many plays. He sat straighter as he said it, feeling every pulse of the noble blood in his veins. Thus I, Draco, compel you, Hermione, by custom, by law, by the seventeenth ruling of the thirty-first Wizengamot, to meet me in Wizard's Jewel with terms, that we each come alone and in silence, speaking to none before or after. If the jewel went poorly, Draco could just say nothing and leave it at that. And if he defeated Granger, he would have learned experimentally that he could beat her again in a public challenge. It wasn't cheating, but it was science, which was almost as good. Contesting by magic solely, without death or lasting injury. Where? 
Draco had been told about a room in Hogwarts that was good for jewels, where everything valuable was already protected by wards, and there were no portraits to tattle on you. Which one had it been again? In the trophy room of the castle of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And their second and public jewel had better be soon, like tomorrow. It would take very little time for his reputation in Slytherin to go irretrievably to sludge. He needed to fight Granger for the first time tonight. Upon midnight stroke that shall end this very day, Draco of the noble and most ancient house of Malfoy. Draco signed the formal parchment and then drew forth his ordinary and lesser parchment and his regular ink for his postscriptum. If you don't know how the rules work, Ranger, here's how it is. You insulted a most ancient house, and I've got the lawful right to challenge. And if you affront the conditions of the duel, like by having Flitwick show up at the trophy room, or even just telling anyone else, my father will take you and your false honour straight to the Wizengamot. Draco Malfoy. On the last letter, his quill pressed down on the parchment so viciously that the nib snapped off, creating a streak of ink and a small rip in the parchment, which Draco decided also looked appropriate. That night, at dinner time, Susan Bones came to Harry Potter and told him that she thought Draco Malfoy was going to carry out his plot against Hermione very soon. She was warning all the members of Spew, and she'd warned Professor Sprout, and she'd warned Professor Flitwick, and she was going to send a letter to her aunt tonight. And now she was warning Harry Potter too. Only they couldn't quite talk about it with Padma, Susan said, looking very serious, because Padma was feeling torn between her loyalty to Hermione and her loyalty to her general. Harry James Potter Evans Verris, who was at this point feeling more frustrated with the entire situation than anything really productive, snapped at her that, yes, he knew something had to be done. After Susan Bones left, Harry looked over at the other end of the Ravenclaw table, where Hermione had sat down away from him, or Padma, or Antony, or any of her other friends. But Hermione didn't look like she was in a mood where somebody going over and bothering her would be taken very well. Later, looking backward, Harry would think of how, in his sci-fi and fantasy novels, people always made their big important choices for big important reasons. Harry Seldon had created his foundation to rebuild the ashes of the Galactic Empire, not because he would look more important if he could be in charge of his own research group. Rasslin Major had severed ties with his brother because he wanted to become a god, not because he was incompetent at personal relationships and unwilling to ask for advice on how to do better. Frodo Baggins had taken the ring because he was a hero who wanted to save Middle-earth, 
not because it would have been too awkward not to. If anyone ever wrote a true history of the world, not that anyone ever could or would, probably 97% of all the key moments of fate would turn out to be constructed of lies and tissue paper and trivial little thoughts that somebody could have just as easily thought differently. Harry James Potter Evans Verris looked at Hermione Granger, where she'd sat down at the other end of the table and felt a sense of reluctance to bother her when she looked like she was already in a bad mood. So then, Harry thought that it made more sense to talk to Draco Malfoy first, just so that he could absolutely, positively, definitely assure Hermione that Draco really wasn't plotting against her. And later on, after dinner, when Harry went down to the Slytherin basement and was told by Vincent that the boss ain't to be disturbed, then Harry thought that maybe he should see if Hermione would talk to him right away, that he should just get started on unravelling the whole mess before it ravelled any further. Harry wondered if he might just be procrastinating, if his mind had just found a clever excuse to put off something unenjoyable but necessary. He actually thought that. And then... Harry James Potter Evans Verris decided that he'd just talk to Draco Malfoy the next morning instead, after Sunday breakfast, and then talk to Hermione. Human beings did that sort of thing all the time. It was Sunday morning on the 5th of April 1992, and the simulated sky above the Great Hall of Hogwarts showed great torrents of rain pouring down in such density that the lightning flashes were diminished and scattered into small pulses of white light that sometimes transformed the house tables, paling their faces and making all the students appear briefly to be ghosts. Harry sat at the Ravenclaw table, wearily eating a waffle waiting for Draco to make an appearance so that he could get started on sorting this whole thing out. There was a quibbler being passed around which had somehow ended up with Hannah and Daphne on the front page, but it hadn't gotten to his place yet. A few minutes later, Harry finished eating his waffle and then looked around again to see if Draco had arrived yet for breakfast at the Slytherin table. It was odd. Draco Malfoy was almost never late. Since Harry was looking in the direction of the Slytherin table, he didn't see Hermione Granger entering through the huge doors of the Great Hall. Thus, he was rather startled when he turned back and discovered Hermione sitting down directly beside him at the Ravenclaw table, just as if she hadn't not done that for more than a week. Hi, Harry. Hermione said, her voice sounding almost exactly normal. She started to put toast on her plate and a selection of healthy fruits and vegetables. How are you? Within one standard deviation of my own peculiar little average, Harry automatically replied. How are you doing? Uh, Did you sleep okay? There were dark bags under Hermione Granger's eyes. Why... 
Yes, I'm fine, said Hermione Granger. Um, Harry said. He took a slice of pie onto his plate. As his brain was occupied with other things, Harry's hand simply took the tastiest thing within range, without evaluating complex concepts like whether he was ready to eat dessert. Um, Hermione, I'm going to need to talk to you later today. Is that okay? Sure, said Hermione. Why wouldn't it be? Because, Harry said, I mean, you and I haven't, for the last few days. Shut up, suggested an internal part of Harry that seemed to have been recently allocated for governing Hermione-related issues. Hermione Granger didn't look like she was paying much attention to him in any case. She just stared down at her plate, and then... After about ten seconds of awkward silence, began to eat her tomato slices, one after another, without pause. Harry looked away from her and began to eat a slice of pie which, he discovered, had somehow materialised on his plate. So, Hermione Granger suddenly said after she'd polished off most of her plate in silence, Anything happening today? Um... Harry said. He looked around frantically as though to find something happening that he could use as conversational fodder. And so, Harry was one of the first to see it, and wordlessly point, although the sudden swell of whispers that swept through the great hall showed that a number of other people had seen it too. The distinctive crimson tinge of the robes would have been recognisable anywhere, but it still took Harry's brain a few moments to place the faces. An Asianish looking man, solemn and today looking rather grim. A man with a piercing gaze that swept over the room, his long black hair waving behind him in a ponytail. A man thin and pale and unshaven with a face so blank that it was like stone. It took Harry a few moments to place the faces, and remember the names, from that long-ago day in January when the Dementor had come to Hogwarts. Komodo Butinaro Gorionov. An aura trio? Hermione said in a strange, bright voice. Why, I wonder what they'd be doing here. Dumbledore was in their company as well, looking as worried as Harry had ever seen him. And after a moment's pause, while the old wizard's eyes scanned the great hall and the students whispering over their breakfasts, he pointed straight at Harry. Oh, now what? Harry said under his breath. His inward thoughts were a lot more panicked than that, as he wondered frantically if anyone had connected him to the Azkaban breakout somehow. He looked at the head table, trying to make the glance casual, and realised that Professor Quirrell was nowhere to be seen this morning. The auras swept toward him with swift strides, Aura Gorionov approaching from the other side of the Ravenclaw table as though to block any escape in that direction. 
Aura Komodo and Aura Butnaro approaching from Harry's side, the headmaster following straight on Komodo's heels. All conversation everywhere had ground to utter silence. The Auras reached Harry's place at the table, surrounding him from three angles. Yes, Harry said as normally as he could. What is it? Hermione Granger, Aura Komodo said in a toneless voice. You are under arrest for the attempted murder of Draco Malfoy.